Welcome to Boardroom's Best, the premier podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, and those who want to lead and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, and high-flying entrepreneurial companies. Now with your host, Nancy May, CEO of BoardBench, let's charge ahead with great leaders worldwide as we learn how to foster the best in ourselves and our firms with greater courage, confidence, and character. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May from The Boardroom's Best. And today I have a very, very special guest that I'm proud to be here with in his home office, Larry Bossidy. Larry, as many of you may know, is the former chairman and CEO of Honeywell and Allied Signal. He built his early career at GE, and we were talking earlier, and he's proud to say that he's got 31 grandchildren, and six of his uh, employees that have worked with him at Allied Signal have gone on to be CEOs and have done wonderful work in the course of business history. And he's been an amazing leader who's also helped create wealth and success for other employees beyond those that went on to CEOs. So Larry, welcome today. And it's a pleasure to have you and here as my guest. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. To start off, I, I want to talk a little bit about your experience as CEO and, and the relationships that you have had with boards in the course of your career. Where were the successes that happened, and where were sort of the challenges that created a little rift and tension for well, you? Well, as a vice chairman of the GE board, of course, I was present all the time in those interactions with board members, and we had a nice run at GE from that time. Jack Welch was the chairman at the time, and the relationship was open. One of the things that I have always insisted upon, including when I was a CEO, later at Allied Signal, and then Honeywell, no clicks on the boards. I wanted all board members to know everything. So if there was a comp committee report, I wanted it to be shared with the entire board. So full transparency across the committees. And no, no one director that I depended on. Now, there's a lead director that obviously knew more than the other directors. But by and large, I wanted to keep everybody informed. And in that way, I thought the, we increased their engagement and made them more significant in terms of the role they played on the boards. In terms of issues, when I was the chairman at Merck when they right. had the Vioxx controversy, and it was a big challenge for the board to, with the management to work that through. And uh, we identified this issue and the risks and went about finding resolution, and we did. And, of course, Merck continues to be a great company today. Absolutely. Now, risks are something that every business is going to have anyway. It's just the nature of how business and society works today and how a a director and even a CEO and leader manages those risks is critical to the ultimate outcome. But what are some of the things that you're seeing today across boards and from the outside and even from the inside of the boards that you serve where directors may not necessarily confront the risks as directly as they should. Well, I think this. For example, uh, today you're having to deal in some cases with activists. That wasn't the case when I was in office. But if I were to be today, you know, I wouldn't repel activists. I'd include them in terms of what their issues were about the company. 
So the activist's not necessarily your friend, but you're engaging to have the conversation. Yes, and if, if they've got some things, if I was the CEO or the board that we hadn't done that had merit, I'd, I'd adopt them. And the things that I disagreed with, I'd also stay, stay, stay on that course. But by and large, not on a continuing basis, but at least at the outset when they raise concerns, invite them in, have the discussion, and see if we can resolve it. Now, they're ultimately an investor in the company anyway, so they should have some sort of they say. Should. Now, I, I thought, for example, the ATT situation just recently was handled very nicely, but in just that way, brought them in, listened to what they had to say, and found a way to reach resolution and get on with running the business. I thought that was, that was handled superbly. Now, is there a time where you would say an activist really doesn't have a place in the conversation? Well, it depends on their intentions. If some of them are just in there to make money, as many of, as them, many are. of them are, then I think you have to recognize that. And, right. Uh, you get your board a clear understanding of what you think their intention is. And I think the board will then decide, along with, with the chairman, as to uh, what should be done about that particular incursion. So when you think about boards today who are so focused on compliance and regulatory issues, and we've got a political, a hot political focus going on in this next year, certainly from an election year, but there's so much pressure on boards to be politically correct in many ways. Are we getting too, too focused on compliance and regulatory issues as opposed to down to the business of the company? You know, uh, to some extent, uh, depending on the company, yes. First of all, a CEO has responsibility to their employees, their customers, their suppliers, to, to their stockholders in terms of uh, dealing with analysts in communities. And their board. I mean, it's six primary constituents for the CEO. And I think the board should act accordingly. In other words, assist them in some of those relationships to the extent they can make a contribution. Assist in the relationships with the employee, the customer, the stockholder? Assist in this way. I, I think in, in my boards, at least, we had a kind of a responsibility committee where they would look at what we're doing for the employees, what okay. we're doing for the communities. So this is beyond social responsibility and ESG? and This is before that. In other words, right. I think a lot of ESG is going on in good companies for a long time. I would it doesn't agree. have the, the publicity that it now gets. Or the official title right. that it but gets today. A lot today. of it's been going on. So I do think there's, a, there's, there's room on the board for a committee that just oversight. Remember the board's roles in an oversight. What are you doing for the employees? What are you doing for your communities? And uh, w what are you doing in terms of national concerns? I must tell you, I was reluctant to take a political position. I didn't mm -hmm. want to offend my customer, and I didn't want to offend some of my employees. We all have sure, different political sure. opinions and, and stance, and, and, and that's and fair. I encouraged them to, to express their differences, but I didn't want to take a stance that would somehow or might be injurious to those two constituents. The business of the company is not necessarily politics, no, is what no. we're saying here. It's the business of the company is to get down to what it produces and sells to the consumer or the, the business that, customer. In order to have a good company, i got to have satisfied employees. So, right. you know, we put in fitness centers. We put in daycare centers in a couple of places where we're losing women too quickly. We gave budgets to businesses. I was always in multi-business companies where they could spend so much on community outreach very few of my employees were interested in what we did at headquarters. They wanted to make an impact on what they were doing in their communities. Got and it. so we gave them a budget each year to spend on those kinds of things. And so if I have a good employees, if I have satisfied customers, then I'm on the way to having a good company.
So it's pretty simple when you think about that. And we've gotten a little wrapped up in so many other areas that uh, the nano thought of the day goes through our brain and you get distracted of what's the purpose of the company and the business to begin with. And I think it's a good thing, Nancy, to have a session with the board every year just to reiterate that stuff. In other words, here's what we're, the management, are responsible for. Here are you as the board, what you're responsible for. Not, Not as a complaint, but just to... Just to make sure we're both on the same page at the outset of a year, for example. So the company has its own customers. Yep. The yep. corporation has a customer, whether it be business to business or business to consumer or a combination right. thereof, right? And the board has its customer. The board's customer ultimately is the shareholder, mm-hmm. right? How many times does that discussion actually take place where the board starts really focusing on, okay, the company has its customer. We want to make sure that the revenues and the profits and the operations are going strong in that environment. And ultimately, that should reflect in the shareholder value, ultimately. How often is that conversation happening in the past? And how frequently do you think that that's happening today? Or are we going left of field? First of all, I've, I had the privilege of being on good boards. That's a benefit. The GE board, the Merck board. I thought my own board was good. I was on the J.P. Morgan board. I've been lucky enough to be associated with good boards. And so those things come up with frequency, not just the profit and loss. That's always first, by the way. You're not making money. You don't have a business. And if I satisfy everybody else and the company doesn't do well, that isn't going to be a recipe for success. But there was always interest in what else we were doing in terms of employees, in terms of customers, you know, in terms of communities in which we participate. And, And I think it isn't just one or the other. It's both. There's always a discussion in current days about short-term and long-term. Good companies do both. You You harvest in the short-term and you plant the seeds for the long-term. And it isn't one or the other, as I mentioned a second ago. You've got to do both. Well, the short term is going to give you an opportunity to see where the bumps in the roads are along the and way. it's a discipline in the sense of being able to judge execution. And so you can't do it to an extreme to hurt the mm-hmm. long term, but it has its place in my opinion. If you think about the boards today, and I'm talking mid-cap on through to the giant boards that, that you served on, when does a board become a better asset to the CEO? Because sometimes the CEO or management or other outside people will look at a board as as a hindrance or distraction to a leader. And that shouldn't necessarily be the case. It shouldn't be. In good companies, it's not. Remember, I think boards are better today than they were 10 years ago. Because? They're more diverse, number one, and there's less cronies. It's been so forced. there's more independence on the board, and, and hence that independence and diversity broadens the path of, of thought, and therefore in itself that's an asset. But I, I never saw my board as a, as a board member myself as, as being uh, troublesome for management. I wanted to work in cooperation with management. If we had disagreements, we talked about it and reached resolution, but the board can be an ally. It should be an ally if it's a good, a good group of individuals. It is an ally. And so, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have that experience, both as a CEO and as a chairman of boards. And that's so important. I think today you see younger companies who don't necessarily know how to build boards. And you may get, you may get too many people who are investors with an agenda in a different side as opposed to the business of the company that's being run and even understanding the business. So you see a, a number of companies that are out there, and I see it certainly with people that I talk to that are directors, and the purpose for them is to be on other boards, but not necessarily to understand the business that they oversee. And that, to me, is a real 
disturbing factor. I, and I think that's true to some extent. I, you know, I'm always leery of people who are on three or four boards for the simple reason that I'm not going to get enough attention in terms of my own board. You're more concerned about that as a CEO. Yes. And, I, and I think other board members are, the, you know, the governance committee, for example, who or the nominating committee, depending on what you name it in certain companies, have to be mindful of that as well. And they are in terms of new directors. I also right. think, uh, and this is somewhat controversial, you, you have to know how to deal with non-contributing board members. Yes. Either by virtue of their lack of participation or their over-participation. And to the extent it's easier to deal with the former, but if you get people that reach the point of disruption on the board, you have to talk with them and ultimately you have to ask them to leave if they don't change. You know, I just had this conversation with another director on a company and it's a it's a diverse candidate who's served on many other boards and has become extremely disruptive. And we had the conversation, not with the disruptive individual, but with the other director. And I said in the exact same thing. If you can't pull that person aside and have the conversation to guide them, sometimes you may need to pair them up with another director to sort of give them the elbow and say, hey, that's not appropriate at this time. Then you have to do the painful job of, of removing them. Now, how often do boards have the strength and fortitude to actually have that conversation and cut the cord when you need to? I was on boards with people who had no trouble having those conversations. And I can remember uh, in the, over many, many years, of, I was only involved in asking two people to leave boards. Well, that's a good track and record. And both of them, because they, were, they confused their role with that of the management, and they became disruptive with viewpoints that no, nobody on the board agreed with. And so it wasn't hard. I did it once myself. The nominating committee did it once. The chairman of that committee dealt with the employee. And by the way, both left without much concern. I mean, they didn't cause any difficulty. Now, you said that they were individuals who got too far involved in management. Is that because they just didn't understand the role of the, the director or were trying to better understand the business? You know, I think in both cases, there was big egos involved. Got it. And they thought they knew better than the management in terms of some issues of which they spoke of. And uh, their viewpoint wasn't well accepted. Mm. And, and they were persistent with it. But it happens in rare occasions. That's the point I want to make. But when it does happen, I think you're going to move up on them. And those are not easy discussions to have either way. But it's, uh, it's good to know that they actually turned out well for you in the long run. And the board afterward felt a sense of relief? Or what happened after that person is removed? Is there a, a, a nervousness or trepidation that takes place? No, nope, there was both a relief and a reminder of what the role of the board members should be, both of which were healthy. You have a, a history of focus on culture and behaviors in the environment of, of the companies. So you're really having a strong, good culture underneath you. How does a board actually encourage the, that culture with a good CEO, you know, there's always that conversation, the tone at the top, which I think is, you know, the tone comes from underneath too. How do you build that strength from a board all the way down? You know, I, I think that the the term culture is misunderstood ac across most companies. Okay. I say that I never did anything to specifically influence the culture. I worked on performance. Mm -hmm. Good performance is a momentum for people to have more self-confidence, to speak up, mm -hmm. and to make suggestions knowing they're going to be listened to. And then I, I think behavior of the CEO matters, not speeches, but behavior. In other words, the things that he can do to help people in terms of outside interests, communities, or just basically good values. 
You know, every every company has the same values between you and me. I mean, they vary a little bit, but not much. Right. But you, when you make an assessment at the end of the year, when I'm assessing you or evaluating you at the end of the year, one of the things I'm eva- evaluating is, did you adhere to these values? And we've had a lot of people with good results and bad behavior. They got to right. go. They got to go. Right. We have people with good behavior and bad results. They have to, they, well, they got to at least be moved someplace else. But we're looking for the person who has that balance. You mentioned the person who has not necessarily great values, yep. but good performance. Yes. That's a tough one when you've got a, from a street perspective, yeah. right? Because the, the goal is to also keep a company going, but to increase the value of the shares for the investors or the shareholders. And when the street rewards on its financial performance, what are the markers that you see that alert you to bad behavior of a of a CEO or management team? Good people surveys. Okay. You know, almost without exception, you have a person with that trait. People are not happy. Yeah. And ultimately, that's a killer. Right. So even though it is difficult in the face of the performance uh-huh. uh, of that individual, to the extent the people are not pulling in his direction, ultimately there's going to be a price paid for that. So the employee relationship has changed over the years as far as tenure goes. You typically, in my parents' day and age, and, and many of many of the years gone past, you get out of college, you get a job at a company, you stay there till your retirement, you leave with a gold watch or whatever the case might be. Yep. Today... You've got a whole nother set of men that's concerned about where am I going to next, even before they get in the door mm-hmm. and interviewing for multiple jobs. Even once they've got the job, they don't stop. So the fastest way up is out, as a professor once told me. But how fast does that go? So there's a balance there on how do we make sure that that employee is going to be happy and going to stick, even though the surveys are good. That's a problem today. And I'm hearing it right across the board with every company. Yeah, but I'll say I'll say this. I think you first of all have to recognize that the values of today's young employees are different than it once was. Recognize it, first of all. So you think the values are different today than they were in years past? Maybe not values, but the quest for success. Quick success is very different than it was, for example, in my day, and and I think in the years uh, even between. So I think you have to recognize it. I think you have to keep them busy. But you'd go to good companies. Take J.P. Morgan, for example. Right. Their retention rates are high. Very much so. Uh, on the other hand, there are some good companies where the retention rates aren't so high. I, I think you do all you can to challenge these people and try to retain them. But you have to live with the result that some are going to leave earlier than they have in the future or past generation. If there was some advice that you could give to a, a younger CEO building their first board from a, a young IPO, and there are many smaller, faster-paced IPOs that are happening at an earlier, more rapid rate today. So it's different than the, the previous days of the hurdles you had to go over to go public. Yep. What would be some of the things and advice you would give that individual? You know, uh, it seems to me that uh, if I'm building a board today and I'm a young company, I, I want to get some business advisors Maybe one from my industry, but maybe a couple from other industries in terms of getting the benefit of that breadth of experience. Uh, I want to get a person who is not just interested in in profit and loss, uh, but in some of the other things you and I have discussed this morning. But build a, a diverse board with as many experiences as you can. So if you need a broader base of experience, are you comfortable with building the size of an average board? So let's say the average board is, say, six or seven people. 
Would you take it to 10 if, in fact, you needed a broader base of support? No. I I like to see boards 8 to 10, but smaller boards 8 rather than 10. Mm -hmm. I would increase the number of meetings, however, for, for companies that just had an IPO. In other words, a lot of them now are four meetings a year. I'd make that six meetings at least for the first year until uh, that relationship has been has been uh, uh, occurred and that the, the investors are the off. Right place. Yeah. The investors are off. You've got more independent directors. Yeah. Yeah. You're moving in a different direction yes. to get the support that you need. Because especially I've seen that you get a CEO who's taking the company public who may not have run a public company. Right. You really need that. I'll call it mentor advisor on the board. And so somebody with that experience is very valuable. I saw not too long ago a CEO who had not been a leader of a public company and had typically been the CEO of private equity companies. It's a very different mindset that's out there. And sadly, did not succeed as the CEO of a public company, was not able to make that adjustment and probably would have done better with a board that had gone through that process more frequently with with I others. I also think try to avoid friends in terms of board members. That's a hard one for a lot of companies. It is, yeah. particularly small companies. But I say that not because you're not supposed to have friends, but the objectivity of independent director is better. And in the last run, in my mind, will be better for that CEO as well. But it's hard for a CEO with a tight relationship with the board not to become friends in some way, shape, or form no, with those directors. that's fine. But I mean, when I say friends, I mean, not buddies that you've grown up. The golf course or, right. yeah. Now, if you have friends because of relationships with board members, I think that's good. Right. But you know what I'm saying. There's a certain level of trust. Yes. Do you think that after a certain amount of time, there should be a refreshment of the board, let's say a term limit or something like that? Yes, I do. I do think there should be a term limit. And I think 10 years, for example, is a a good place to start. Actually, I had seen some obvious markers ourselves over the course of time that eight years, the relationship starts to peak and then goes down. That would give it, and a study in INSEAD had shown the exact same thing. Same and I think you get more fresh thinking, too, as Absolutely. you change the board over in some time frame. Yet still, as the business is changing and the environment is changing yep. to going things. So directors are not big fans of term limits I these know, days. But, but I yeah. think that's coming, and I think it should come. So if you were to look at today, how prepared boards are really for the future? I mean, there's so much that's happening in the world today from an economic perspective, from a global environment, and from a technology perspective. How prepared are we really for shifts that that may happen? Well, you can't be prepared for everything, obviously. Uh, But I think good board members do their homework, and they're they're in different segments of society and in business, and they bring, uh, I think, some contemporary thoughts in terms of what's going on around them. And, uh, you know, one of the things you can do at a board, it seems to me, is not frequently, but once a year, what are the real issues that could impact our company? So basically a a true risk assessment on the environment. What would you do about it? For example, let's assume the Chinese situation were to escalate as opposed to looks like it now, it's going to de-escalate. What would we do now further? I mean, how would you react to that in this board? Or depending on the kind of business you're in, there are different kinds of risks. But identify those risks for the board and then discuss what you do about them if they were to occur. So if they do occur, 
you're not, you're not just standing there and being unprepared to deal with so it. So you're basically creating a fire driller scenario environment. Yeah, yeah. So you're ready yeah. to know what to do when the yes. when the fire erupts yeah. and, and how do you get your kids and your family and your employees out of the out just of the Just as an example, Nancy, I, a Boeing is a great company. I mean, it has been on the map for years and years and it's very successful. But they handled the situation with the 737. Not very well. They didn't get out in front of it, and so it's lingered longer than it should be. A good friend of mine, Dave Calhoun, is now is, is now the uh, chairman of the board, and he'll certainly help bring this to uh, some stability. But it happened too slowly. Absolutely, that's a hard decision for I think any leader to make, and and even boards to say, you know, how fast do you move? But this was a this was a disaster. And you look at other companies like WeWorks which was a whole nother explosion that took place in a different type of environment. Well, there's two things there. You could say, why wasn't the board more aware of what the chairman of WeWorks was doing? Right. And, and why wasn't there some apprehension somewhere down the road that either dealt with it one way or another? I think you could say the same thing about GE. Where was the GE board for 15 years as the, as the company basically calcified? That's a long time to keep your foot on the brake. It is. So when should a board really dive in and say, you know, enough is enough? Well, you know, I think, first of all, you don't want to be impetuous. Right. And you want to give the person time to perform in a way. It doesn't have to happen in a year, depending, you know, on the business you're in. But, you know, in executive board sessions every year, there should be a discussion of performance. Should those discussions happen more frequently at every board meeting? Depending on the nature of the crisis in the company. If it if it looks like it's going off off the rails ever more frequently, yes, you want to be fair and, and but on the other hand, you got to be able to deal with performance across a broad number of objectives and act accordingly. And sometimes the outside media pushes an issue to a greater level of exaggeration than it may have, and you just can't put water on that fire. No, and you don't want you don't want to go every one of those directions. I mean, no. if you know the company, you know the objectives, you know the performance, act on those facts. What I'm hearing is that beyond the executive session that we talked about, you know, you said the once a year discussion, we really should be having these conversations more frequently in the boardroom. It's not just a committee report, a committee member comes up, talks about what's going on, clear transparency you talk about across, which not every board has. They don't have that transparency across the committees. I do think that every board, the ones that I've been on, at least devoted one one session to discussing the people. In other words, their performance, their growth trajectory. Once a year, you're saying. Yeah, I'm saying that happens once a year. Now, in the case of a crisis, that has to be more frequent. And uh, the facts should determine how frequently you should address that subject, it seems to me. And even between board meetings. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there was a chairman years back who said, I don't get paid enough for this in a disaster, which was certainly a frightening conversation to have yeah. from an outside perspective. Also, I, I think, and you've seen this in terms of your own conversations, uh, a self-confident CEO deals with the crisis much better than one that's insecure. Well, a self-confident CEO knows how to go to the board and say, I can't handle this, or yeah. I'm, I'm or stuck, I need, I need some help. And doesn't worry about it in terms of how his appearance might be on that occasion. No, not everybody can handle the problem no. by themselves. I mean, we're all and fallible got, at some if point. you've got a board with quality people... Why not solicit their their help when you need to? Well, and you certainly know what the quality of those individuals are when you do. the rubber meets the road, you do. so to speak, which is a lot more today, I think, than uh, than we've had in the past, probably because of the, the visibility 
of what happens in the media, which also can not always be correct. No, no, of course not. You've got to take that with a grain. You know, to ignore these things is wrong, but to take them all seriously is wrong as well. Yeah, I agree. You've you got to sift. So trust between the CEO and the board and trust from the board to the CEO. Don't pull the trigger too quickly on either side, but know how to pick up the phone and ask for help or walk into the door and ask for help when necessary and even outside help when needed. That's where I've been from, and that's what I certainly endorse. It seems very common sense where maybe we've lost a little bit of that. You know, common sense is not so common as they say. Before we wrap up, I wanted to just bring forward an effort that you had mentioned to me that you and your family are involved in called Peace Love. Would you share a little bit about that? Yes. uh, We had a a grandchild uh, who was victimized by suicide a year ago. And so we set up a foundation called Radical Hope Foundation aimed at trying to combat suicide among youth. Mm -hmm. And one of the programs that we partnered with is called Peace Love. And their program is attract young people. They do it through expressive arts, sometimes through art itself in terms of bringing people out, willingness to discuss their issues. And and, uh, they have six core approaches within that program in terms of how to reach young people. It's spread throughout the country now. It's doing well. Uh, Radical Hope will have a second one, we hope, this year, a different approach, but aimed at the same targets. So uh, we we picked youth because we can't attract all the suicidal situations in the country. And by the way, they're enormous and alarming. They are. But we might be able to make a difference in this niche with youth. That's what our focus is, and we're proud of the progress we've made. That's terrific. And it's it's such a touching focus, a parent that may be going through this and not even be aware of it in their own corporate environment. It's very difficult to keep that stiff upper lip and go to work every day when you know you've got a child that's in trouble. No question. I thank you for that, Larry. That's We're we're glad we were able to do it. I'm sorry that you had to go through the tragedy yourself and your family, but uh, especially around the holiday times, we um, give you my my love and, and care and support and continued endorsement of of the work that you're doing. So thank you. I appreciate that. Nice talking with you this morning. Take care, Larry. Thank you very much. Boardrooms Best is brought to you in part with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.